Shalom, and welcome to The Straw Hat, hosted by Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. We are the official podcast of Anshay Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, welcome to The Straw Hat Podcast. I am uh, really happy that my uh, college friend, <laughs> Rachel Wienerman, is uh, is joining us. Uh, Rachel and I were uh, undergrads together um, some years ago, and uh, now as Dr. Rachel Wienerman, she's a physician who practices in uh, in Cleveland, and her work is uh, has implications for a lot of uh, current uh, medical ethics and public policy uh, questions. So I wanted to bring her on uh, to talk about her work and and uh, and how it has implications, like as I said, for topics that we're all talking about. Um, so, uh, Rachel, can you please just first introduce yourself <laughs> to tell us where you are and where you live and and, uh, and what you do? First of all, thank you, Rabbi Wilkenfeld, for bringing me on. Um, David, if I can say that. Um, yes. <laughs> we were definitely friends in college, and it's so nice to be back. So um, I am a reproductive endocrinology and infertility physician in Cleveland, Ohio. I practice at university hospitals. And um, I'm also the program director for the fellowship, so I also train fellows. And, you know, what I do on a daily basis is really help um, people of all, you know, different, you know, backgrounds and stripes um, who want to conceive, um, who are also interested in fertility preservation, um, really, you know, building families. So that's really what I'm, what I do in my daily job. So you can just break that down just, um, so the endocrinology part and the, that, that would be if it's a hormonal issue that's preventing people from being able to conceive or that? Yeah, correct. So I do, I do work with all types of what we call reproductive endocrinology. So, you know, hormonal issues that may affect reproduction. And then the infertility is specifically, you know, any issues that may um, impact someone's ability to, you know, either get pregnant or stay pregnant. Um, And that has really broadened in past years because there's all kinds of issues that may prevent someone from getting pregnant. You know, you may have couples, you may have a single person, um, you may have, you know, LGBT couples. So there's all types of people that may um, not be able to reproduce. And then there's also people who have recurrent pregnancy loss, right, who can get pregnant, but then um, can't stay pregnant. Um, So my job really is helping people, um, you know, who are struggling to conceive um, get pregnant and stay pregnant with all the different methods that are available today. So how many, I mean, you must have like, you must know, like the babies that are born, like who are now walking about on this earth because of your interventions. Like you keep a, a tab of, of how many babies you've, you've helped uh, bring to the no, world. That's- question. I don't keep a tab, but I do have a drawer. So every REI doctor has a drawer of all the cards that we've received, you know, all the baby cards that we get um, in the emails that we do print out. And, you know, it's one of those things if we're dealing with something, sometimes you're really challenging cases or hard days, you know, you just pull out that drawer and you look at all the pictures. um, And that just makes you realize, you know, all the good work that you've done in the world. And, you know, that, that always makes me happy. Oh, that's that's really that sounds really spectacular and a very rewarding um, and important work that you're doing. So, so I, I think like some years ago, you know, your, your pre-COVID, your home was like a stopping place for us on our uh, annual uh, drives across country back to back to New York. And I think I think that's probably where we we were talking about how the kind of shifting political landscape had some implications for for your work. I guess this was. Um, you know, maybe whatever, a few a few years ago. So some earlier stage of Supreme Court ruminations about abortion access uh, being uh, being threatened. And um, you shared that you, you thought it was your own work in, in IVF 
and, and fertility treatment more broadly was implicated, which is something that I think is a little bit counterintuitive. Um, right? Abortion is about ending pregnancies. Your work is creating pregnancies. And yet um, you shared ways in which your work is predicated on abortion access. So I, I, it's in the news again, actually, as, as we speak, you know, we're recording this on Wednesday morning, June 8th, I think, um, the Supreme Court is supposed to issue some decision today um, in the coming hours, so no one knows what it is, but it's expected that the Supreme Court will severely limit or eliminate uh, the Roe v. Wade precedent. And, and so, so please share how this, how this raises concerns for the work that you do. Yeah, so I think that's a really good point, and it is true. We did discuss this several years ago, and it is now definitely back in the news. And it's actually something that I'm getting asked about daily in my practice, you know, both from people who know me more broadly and from my patients. Because, you know, in essence, helping people get pregnant, you know, is really predicated on reproductive freedom and reproductive choice. Um, And that necessitates a degree of flexibility in the law um, that if that freedom is taken away, it really limits our ability to help patients who want to get pregnant, you know, in terms of making decisions about how we do that. And I, I can go into more detail. Yeah, but could you please that that sounds a little bit abstract? Yeah. Yeah. So let me let me give you some examples um, because I think that it's really important to understand. I'll put it to you this way: pregnancy is complicated. Right. So when we talk about pregnancy, a lot of times people are like, oh, you get pregnant and then everything goes well. So in my line of work, that's often not the case. Uh When you get pregnant, that's really just the start. Mm -hmm. And then whether that pregnancy is going to be successful really takes a lot of thinking, effort and work. And to understand whether that pregnancy is going to be, say, a miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy that is actually going to be life-threatening or dangerous to the woman because it's not implanted in the correct place in the uterus, um, or whether it's going to be successful, that takes some time to understand. And when there's a law that says you can't terminate a pregnancy, say, ever, or after six weeks, well, you know, I might need to in order to help that patient move on to the next pregnancy if this is not going to be a successful pregnancy, but I might need time to make that decision. I might need to, you know, make some assessments. I, you know, I might not be able to, to know for sure what's happening with this pregnancy to say viable, not viable. Um, and the law doesn't really give me that flexibility, right? The law is very black and white and pregnancies are not black and white. So I would say one example is that viability is not always clear. And, you know, for a woman who's struggling with infertility, if she doesn't want to damage her future fertility, I might need to make an assessment and say, you know what, let's intervene now before your fallopian tube is damaged, before your uterus is damaged. It's better for us to just, you know, end this pregnancy now when we think it's not going to be viable so we can move on to healthy pregnancy. The law might not give me that flexibility if it's written in a very blunt fashion. So and currently, these are, de- these are decisions and intro- conversations you have with your patients and routine, routinely. Yeah. So I would say currently, you know, my ability to make these decisions is really based on medical judgment, lots of counseling with the patient and, you know, multiple assessments that really get to the heart of, you know, how is this pregnancy progressing? And then what are the patient's goals? 
You know, so it's a shared decision-making between doctor and patient in terms of, you know, how are we going to make a decision that best takes into account your current needs and your future needs. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one example. I would say the viability of a pregnancy is not always known, particularly in situations of what we call pregnancies of unknown locations or ectopic pregnancies. And I think that's a really... Um, important area where I think if the law is very blunt and saying you can't terminate a pregnancy after a certain time period or ever, that's going to really curtail doctors' ability to help women early in their pregnancies. Ectopic pregnancy, is that, I, I'm surprising because I thought it would be relatively easy to figure out that was happening with a little ultrasound. You see it's in the wrong place, but it's not it's so clear. It's so challenging. Um, uh, it's one of the most challenging situations that as IVF doctors we face. Um, we actually have a whole category. It's called pregnancy of unknown location, which is very frustrating for a patient. If you can imagine to have a pregnancy, you don't know where it is. And a pregnancy that you've already invested so much time and energy and money in in bringing to this stage. And you don't even know if it it could be life-threatening or it could be fine. Correct. Yeah. So to have to figure that out under the time, like a ticking clock of a, of a lock would be very, would be very challenging. Correct. Um, Let me give you another example. So, you know, a lot of times my patients who are trying to get pregnant are high risk, you know, for any number of reasons. They may be older, um, you know, they may have more medical complications just to start, right? They may have diabetes, high blood pressure, things that affect their kidneys. And that's maybe why they have infertility, right? Why they're coming to see me. Um, And that's okay, right? I am helping them get pregnant. We're going to be having them under the care of specialists. um, And I really want them to reproduce. They want to have a baby. They want to have children. Um, But that also means that they may have more complications that arise in their pregnancies. And we really need to help them in those situations. Um, Those pregnancies may have a higher rate of fetal or congenital anomalies. Um, And sometimes patients want to be able to terminate those pregnancies either for maternal or fetal indications. You know, they may do a test early in the pregnancy that reveals a genetic abnormality. That's more common as women get older. Um, They may find a congenital abnormality, like a severe birth defect. Um, That is more common in women who have certain medical conditions like diabetes. And for maternal indications, you know, they may have situations where their kidneys um, are failing and they need to terminate a pregnancy for their health. Um, severe blood pressure may be threatening to the mom. When does health conditions become life-threatening? Or I should say, when do health conditions become life-threatening? You know, that's really a very murky line. And a lot of these laws are being written to say there are exceptions for maternal life. Now, to the layperson, that may sound great. Okay, you're going to make exceptions for maternal life. But to a physician, I don't know when maternal health turns into maternal life. You know, when does something become life-threatening? You know, I can say, well, if this pregnancy continues for three more weeks, you know, then the mom's, you know, health might be at risk. But if I terminate it now, then she's more likely to be able to go on to have a healthy pregnancy. So is that a life-threatening complication or is that just, you know, going to make it easier to, for her to have another pregnancy? So these are really 
um, very, very challenging situations. And physicians really don't want to be in the situation where they're challenging a law because, you know, if they end up terminating a pregnancy against the law, then their license may be at risk or, you know, they actually may face criminal charges or jail time. So, you know, when I'm making decisions that, you know, involve a patient's health, I don't want to have to be calling a lawyer every time, you know, I'm trying to help a woman make a decision. And so when I'm thinking about a patient situation, you know, I really need some flexibility in terms of, you know, her health, her future fertility, and what's in her best interest that a lot of these laws don't provide. Wow. It, you know, it's interesting, it, the um, just thinking about some of the halachic cases of where we violate Shabbat for Pikuach Nefesh, where I, I, my understanding from what I've learned is we have a very, very expansive uh, sense of what could be Pikuach Nefesh, even... Uh, Fairly remote risks uh, are often included under that under that that rubric. Um, I, I know of a case of a, a young woman who who um, she fell and gashed open her face on on a Shabbos afternoon, and a ambulance corps w- was was called. You know, because of open bloody wound is you know is something that needs to be treated, and that that's seems pretty obviously pikuach nefesh. A big untreated you know wound on your face is not not something you can wait to to treat. But the the closer hospital was a lower quality hospital and they would patch her up and they would, you know, make sure that the wound didn't get infected, but they would leave a very disfiguring scar across her face. And if they continued to drive her an additional distance, uh, they could take her to a better hospital where they would, you know, have a, you know, do better suturing and she wouldn't have a disfiguring gash. And the, the, the post who discussed this case with me said that he told, it was a, it was a Jewish ambulance course said drive the extra distance, take her to a better hospital. She should, you know, not have to go through the rest of her life with a disfiguring, um, gash across her face. And, you know, once, once, once we're treating her, we treat her in that best possible way. We may, we care about her future well-being um, and incorporate that into this, uh, this Pekulach Nefesh framework. Um, you know, it seems like, I guess, yeah, it seems like you're also making kind of weighing these sort of multiple um, factors. It's not just uh, will this person die, you know, today if I don't intervene. It's like, what, what is the, the scope of this person's future um, given these weighty risks to her? And, and so... Yeah. yeah, it's challenging. I mean, you know, a lot of times, let's say the couple, you know, does have, unfortunately, you know, a pregnancy that's affected by a major congenital or fetal anomaly. You know, typically they're offered two choices. They can terminate the pregnancy or they can carry the pregnancy to term. You know, many times that pregnancy is not going to survive, you know, more than say a few days after birth, um, you know, or maybe even a few months. So in that situation, let's say the woman decides to carry the pregnancy to term and deliver, and then let's say the the baby only survives for a couple of days. So in that situation, let's we're, we're looking at it now from her fertility perspective, right? She wants to have a healthy child. Mm-hmm. Carrying that pregnancy to term may actually sacrifice her ability to have another healthy child because she may have damage from carrying that, you know, that pregnancy to term. She may have to have a C-section, for example, that may limit her ability to have another delivery. Um, And the time that she spent carrying that pregnancy and recovering may sacrifice her ability to conceive another healthy pregnancy, depending on her age. Hmm. It's really a different kind of moral calculation than, uh, you know, a younger couple who has more, much more time to play around with and is able to conceive without medical intervention. Um, it's just a different moral calculation, I think, or right than than somebody in this situation. It sounds that sounds really quite significant. Um, what what about issues of? Um, um, I, I guess you you have frozen embryos in your clinics uh, 
freezer, I guess, right? Um, is that is that how does that play into these these um, discussions? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. It kind of gets to the more fundamental issue: is you know what is the uh, fundamental um, issue of IVF? You know, what is in vitro fertilization, which is one of our big fertility treatments? So that involves actually taking eggs from a woman's body. So we usually give hormonal treatment, uh, stimulation to grow the eggs. We take them out of a woman's body and then we fertilize them in a Petri dish with sperm. So that creates embryos in a Petri dish. And then we usually create multiple embryos because it takes a lot of embryos to find the best one. And then we transfer that embryo into a uterus to create a healthy pregnancy. Now, if we're very lucky, it will work on the first try. Often it doesn't. Um, but we do sometimes have extra embryos that end up you know, being frozen for future use. So that gets to the question of what is the status of those frozen embryos you know, in, in the law? And currently, you know, there's no special status of a frozen embryo. So they can be discarded um, or used for um, training purposes if the couple want. Now, it's interesting, federally, you can't do research on um, embryos with money from the federal government. Like there's a, um, you know, a limitation on that. But there's nothing to stop a fertility clinic, say, from doing training or research on embryos from, you know, with private funding. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, laws that define a um, conception, meaning a egg and a sperm that's fertilized as a person in the eyes of the law would seriously curtail our ability to, you know, discard frozen embryos. And that really would then limit our ability to do in vitro fertilization because we wouldn't be able to have excess embryos either frozen or discarded. Just to like play this out, it's not feasible for a couple who wants to do IVF to just harvest one egg or fertilize one egg and implant that egg one at a time because it, it's so, so often it takes multiple attempts and to go through that process of harvesting the eggs each time isn't possible. And to just store them in perpetuity is... Um, I guess an expense that that is also not not not. I mean, I know I know I know people who've stored eggs for years, and every time they have another child, you know, every several years, it's the same batch of frozen embryos that they use for each 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 child that they've given, you know, that they've had. But um, I guess eventually, often they they run out of, you know, <laughs> they're they're done. Their family is the size that they want it to be, and they're extra frozen embryos, and those are typically discarded. That's that's routine. Yeah. So typically, those are either discarded. Um, donated to other couples mm. um, or, like I said, used for research purposes. So, you know, embryo donation is an option for couples, but not everybody wants to donate their embryos to somebody else for use. Um, mm. So a lot of them are discarded. But, you know, like you said, sometimes people do want multiple children and then they can use their embryos for multiple pregnancies, um, which is ideal for us. You know, we're very happy when um, you know, couples can build their whole family from one IVF cycle and have many embryos frozen. Mm -hmm. uh, but there often are times when there are extra embryos and there are millions of frozen embryos stored right now in the country. Um, so, you know, that becomes an ethical challenge or a legal challenge, you know, if you redefine an embryo in the eyes of the law. So you, I guess you don't see it as an ethical challenge uh, because I guess, I guess, can you share a bit? Like, I mean, these, these embryos do have the unique DNA of the person they might grow into, right? There is a unique um, 
never before seen, never again will be seen combination of of DNA, but you don't see them as as people. Um, I, I guess you, know, you deal with them all the time. I've never I've never seen one. So let's uh, yeah. So I mean, I'm a doctor, so I'm looking at it from a medical perspective. Um, you know, we can also discuss it from a halakhic perspective if mm-hmm. you're interested. But from a medical perspective, you know, what happens is an egg and a sperm come together in a petri dish. And then they begin to divide. If you remember from biology class, there's the process of mitosis. Hmm. Most people probably dreaded learning about that in biology, (laughs) but it's where cells divide. So you go from like one cell to two cells to four cells to eight cells. They're dividing exponentially. So we actually keep the embryos in the Petri dish for five days. So when we're talking about embryos, it's a fertilized egg that has grown in a Petri dish for five days. So by that point, it's gotten to be about 100 cells. Mm-hmm. And it's differentiated into two different cell types. Okay, One cell type is actually going to hopefully grow into the fetus. And then one cell type is going to grow into the placenta, which is the organ that actually provides the nourishment for the fetus in the uterus. So it's really about 100 cells. It's like a, it's a shaped like a sphere. So it's a cluster of cells. In my mind, it has the potential to become an, a fetus or an embryo, or if you want to say it has the potential to become a person. Because in order for all those things to happen, it has to be transferred into a uterus, right? So a woman has to have a uterus. You have to transfer it into the uterus of a woman. All the environment has to be perfect. It has to implant. Um, and then it has to grow. And when we transfer embryos, even under the best conditions, only about 60% will implant and form an, um, a healthy baby. That's like in the best case scenario. Sometimes, you know, depending on the age of the woman, it could be as low as 15%. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess to me, because the potential is there, but there are so many steps that it takes, um, I really see it as these are... Um, a fertilized egg that in the right environment has the potential to become. And I understand that's not all that different from um, natural pregnancies, that the way God made men and women, a substantial percentage of eggs that are fertilized don't end up as healthy pregnancies. Many of them are miscarried without the parents ever knowing that there was a pregnancy to begin with. It seems that uh, um Fertilized eggs are, a, are almost a byproduct of human reproduction uh, in a substantial, some really substantial numbers. Yes, I would say we are not very efficient reproducers. Okay. So somehow, <laughs> right. we're, not, yeah, we're not rabbits, which is fine. Um, I think that there's probably some reasons for that, but um, you know, we, you know, eggs they do they sit in what we call meiosis in a rest for many years, and many of them have meiotic errors. So many eggs are actually chromosomally abnormal, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of embryos don't implant. Um, and you know, just for for other reasons, you know, many embryos don't implant. So there's there is potential, um, but it doesn't it's not actualized potential in many cases. Yeah, that's, yeah. I, I just just to echo, I, I think the halakhic consensus is that um, embryos that are outside of a person that have never been implanted into a uterus are not considered lives and and are not. There's no general permission of breaking Shabbos, for example. You can't break Shabbos to save a frozen embryo from being destroyed. You know, if uh, 
if your freezer gets unplugged, you can't have to plug it back in with a shinui. You have to use your elbow or something to turn it back on or or ask a, you know, you know, so you couldn't you wouldn't be a hatcher to break Shabbos directly to save a frozen embryo. That it's 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 has great importance to the family that wants it. And it could lead to something, but is not itself uh, yet yet ever. So so what, what what's the state of affairs in Ohio? Do you know? Like what you know, pending Supreme Court decisions, like what are there laws on the books already in your state? Is that something you're you're thinking about or something your patients are asking about? Like what's yeah, so Ohio is interesting. So we do have a Republican-controlled legislature, and currently there are two potential laws that are um, options. So there is a six-week what we call heartbeat bill ban that um, is likely to be passed um, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, which means that there'll be a blanket abortion ban starting at six weeks of pregnancy. Um, and that is likely to be passed in Ohio. So exceptions would only really be for the life of the mother, mm. um, which is, you know, what I talked about before, that kind mm. of line. So, for example, you know, if a woman did have, um, you know, a fetal anomaly diagnosed or genetic abnormality diagnosed, she would have to go out of state for care. Mm. Um, and then that would potentially, you know, affect my ability to care for women like in those situations, you know, past six weeks of pregnancy, but, you know, on the, on the border of viability. Um, but it wouldn't necessarily affect my ability to practice IVF um, because it would define abortion at starting at six weeks. The mm. other bill that is actually currently being debated in the Ohio legislature would be a total abortion ban, meaning all pregnancies. Um, that um, may not come to a floor vote, but that is what is currently being, was, was actually debated two weeks ago um, in the Ohio legislature. So how do, how do your patients relate to these? And, and, and yeah, how do, like, I guess they're aware also, like all of us are. Um, but what concerns do they share with you? So, you know, my patients are concerned. I think they are concerned mostly because, you know, like me, they want flexibility in terms of how they, um, you know, pursue their fertility treatments. They want to be able to make sure their frozen embryos are safe. Um, and they want to be able to make choices that, um, you know, best reflect their needs. So, I would say um, a lot of my patients have asked me, you know, is IVF still going to be legal? Am I still going to be able, um, you know, to get the care that I need? And, you know, I, I have to reassure them right now it is. Um, I hope that it will be, but that's something that um, we will have to see. Um, you know, I would say one situation that I think has come up that I think is really important to um, address and I have addressed with my patients is that, you know, as women get older, like I mentioned, there is a higher rate of, um, you know, genetic or chromosomal abnormalities that occur in pregnancies. And so many women will make the decision to do genetic screening early in pregnancy, which we can do, you know, even earlier than we used to, um, but not earlier than say 11 weeks of pregnancy, mm -hmm. sometimes by blood tests. Um, and then they will terminate, you know, if there is, for example, a, what we call trisomy extra chromosome, like trisomy 13 or trisomy 18. Um, some people will terminate for Down syndrome, which is trisomy 21. Some people won't. We do have the ability to screen embryos in IVF. Mm -hmm. That's something called pre-implantation genetic testing or PGT. So people um, are asking me, should I do pre-implantation genetic testing or PGT to screen these embryos so that I'm less likely to mm -hmm. have to terminate a pregnancy for genetic you know, reasons if we don't have the ability to do that in Ohio? Why would that sounds like a win-win? Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they want that? Is there is there a what's what's wrong with that as a solution? 
So it's it's not necessarily wrong as a solution. The only challenge is that, you know, PGT comes with its own issues. There's some controversy about whether, you know, the testing may not be 100% accurate and we may actually be discarding embryos that do have mm-hmm. some reproductive potential. And so, you know, for patients who are really struggling to conceive, I don't always recommend it because it doesn't necessarily improve success rates for those patients. So, you know, patients may make decisions that may make it somewhat more challenging to get pregnant, but on the other hand, you know, decrease their need for potential terminations, you know, depending on the legal climate in Ohio. Wow. Um, So can you share a little bit about how this is percolating through your community? Because you're not just a physician, you're also um, a mother and, uh, you know, member of a a community in, in your neighborhood in Cleveland. You should, how, how are your neighbors and friends talking about this? And uh, I understand they're turning to you as well for guidance uh, as these questions are back in everyone's mind. Yeah. So it, it's really interesting. Um, people have been asking me all the time, you know, what is the orthodox stance on abortion? And it's interesting that they've turned to me as a reproductive endocrinologist to ask those questions. I, at first, I was a little surprised that, you know, people were asking me, but, you know, I don't, find that the connection between infertility and abortion um, is, you know, counterintuitive. I actually think it's a continuum, right? Like we are helping people, uh, you know, make reproductive choices. So to me, it's natural. Um, But I was surprised that other people made that connection. Uh but they did, and they've been asking me, and um, they've come at it from two perspectives. You know, some people just want to know, um, you know, what is your view? What's the orthodox view? Um, and some people are coming at it from the perspective of, oh, well, de- orthodoxy doesn't believe in abortion, right? Um, and so that's been that's been very interesting to address. So, you know, I've really been trying to educate people that actually Judaism's view on abortion is a lot more flexible than say the Catholic or, you know, evangelical view of abortion is. And this is going to affect my ability as an infertility physician to provide care. So those are the two points that I've been trying to educate people so that they understand that this may affect their lives as well, um, you know, no matter where they are on the political spectrum and no matter where they are in life, because they may have daughters, sisters, wives, nieces, granddaughters, you know, that may need reproductive care. So um, one, that's, you know, that's kind of the the general conversation I'm happy to expand. Yeah, please do expand because I, I think, you know, I, I think the sort of a stereotype of who needs abortion access, it's somebody uh, maybe not living a, uh, like a, I don't know, like a pious, uh, you know, from lifestyle, but actually like our shuls are filled with kids who were conceived with assistance from from physicians like you uh, and uh, and and so what you're sharing with us is that actually this um, this legal issue this political issue is is directly directly implicated in the way our community um, operates right now yeah so I think what's interesting um, is is twofold so I think that there is this tendency within certain aspects of the Orthodox community I'm not saying all but I think in some to conflate, um, right-wing politics with orthodox um, principles. Um, and so there is this tendency to say that, you know, as orthodox Jews, we have to, you know, support conservative views on abortion, which I don't necessarily think 
really make sense from a halachic perspective. Because from a halakhic perspective, you know, I would say we really want to maintain flexibility since our view of abortion is really fairly flexible in the sense that, you know, we do obviously have a very high respect for the fetus and for pregnancy. And our general guiding principle in halakha is, you know, pru or vu. That's our, that's the guiding principle that I use in my practice of medicine and that we use in Judaism. But we also have a very high respect for the health and well-being of the mother. And we don't necessarily place the well-being of the fetus above the health of the mother, um, you know, until the very end of pregnancy. And so there are many situations when termination is not necessarily even allowed, but recommended depending Mm -hmm. on the situation. And it's very individualized. So I don't think that women or even couples should just assume that Judaism says that abortion is not allowed. I think that it's it's much more nuanced than that. And, you know, there are many situations when an Orthodox woman may find herself in need of um, a pregnancy termination or may find that the pregnancy care that's recommended by her doctor in a desired pregnancy is actually considered a termination under the law. And so you really want the law to be as flexible as possible so that halacha can guide, you know, along with your medical doctors, what is the proper care in those situations. So how does this, how do they hear this message at shul? Like when you're, you know, schmoozing a kiddish or I don't know, like at the playground while your kids are playing, you're talking to other parents, like, is this, do people like, do people get this or, or or do you feel there's resistance? Um. I think when I phrase it that way, people pause. You know, it's it's very challenging to, you know, sway a very longstanding political belief. But I think that when you phrase it that way, people pause and they say, oh, you know what? You're right. And then they backtrack. And then they say, you know what? I've never actually believed in such an extreme abortion ban as what's being debated now. I've always held a middle ground and I wish that we could have a middle ground, mm-hmm. right? I don't think that we should have an extreme, you know, abortion is available on demand for everybody all the time, but there should be some regulation, but there should be exceptions. You know, the doctor should be allowed to make those decisions. There should be health exceptions. We shouldn't have the extremes that are being proposed now. So I think when it comes down to it, yes, they actually agree and they don't agree with the very severe laws that are being proposed. And so, but they also don't agree with the very liberal policy. So when you come down to it, then they realize, oh, maybe I don't agree with either side. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so that, 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 that's a hard place to be. Maybe, maybe that's also a very authentic Jewish position is not to yeah. have your views necessarily reflected by a major other group of Americans right now. Um, that's really important. Um, anything else uh, that you want to add, something I haven't asked about or something you'd like to develop further? Well, you know, what's interesting in talking about what I've heard from people, you know, I've been surprised by, you know, in this vein of how much, you know, what is influenced by Catholic views has permeated the general view, how much in the Orthodox community specifically, you know, people do think that the embryo has a halachic status, Mm -hmm. you know, that people are concerned by, you know, how do we dispose of 
embryos or are we allowed to dispose of embryos or are we allowed to do IVF from the Jewish perspective? And I think that's really, in my mind, probably influenced by the Catholic view because that's not really a Jewish concept. Mm -hmm. Um, You said the halacha does not really um, provide a special status to the pre-implantation embryo. Um, And that's something that I think probably requires some education from the Orthodox community so they can understand that nuance. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, I think the people who need this type of intervention, they probably learn it, but then the rest of the community doesn't necessarily know. Um, You know, it's, I mean, you know, so I think you're right. And it's look, it's a common phenomenon. I'm sure, you know, everyone does it. We we kind of join political movements and we, uh, or, or we associate with bigger trends, cultural trends, and we sort of assimilate various parts of their worldview, even when some of those worldview components are really not consistent with a more authentic Jewish perspective. So it's, this seems to be a particularly fraught example because the people who need that flexibility are, are like our own members of our community. Like we, at our shul, we, um, little kids come in there and the bima for a Jonah alarm and they get lollipops and they dance and they sing. And I, I just, you know, I, I know like a substantial percentage of them were, were brought to the world through assisted reproductive technology. I'm sure there are others that I don't know about. And I just, it just breaks my heart to think that these beautiful children who are like the, literally the future of our community um, were brought here through a process that is now um, at such risk. And I, you know, it seems that there's like constraints in Ohio and I think there are other States, uh, you know, I've heard uh, sort of fetal personhood laws that, you know, that would go back to conception, uh, which seems w- would have like really, really direct implications for IVF and, you know, like major parts of this country where there are also Jews who live and, and as long as well as our non-Jewish fellow citizens who have their ability to grow their families in this way really curtailed. So I, I you know, I, I think it's, um, yeah, I, I wonder if that sort of moderate regulation that seems to be a lot of your, your the people you speak to want, if that's, if that's a possibility or if, uh, we're going to be left with one extreme or, or another in the legal realm, but um, um. I know. I wish that there was room in the debate for moderation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the poll suggests that the majority of Americans want moderation, yeah. um, and so I do think that if we had some sort of you know regulation, say in the second trimester, that left you know. Um, you know, why discretion for physicians. I think that's something that a lot of people could get behind. Um, but unfortunately, that's not at all where the political discourse is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I guess at least in that state, like the, in that, I guess from my perspective, I feel like it, it, at least in a Roe v. Wade wide open abortion access kind of model that at least preserves the ability for religious communities or other ethical traditions to promote their vision or our vision of what we think is like ethical and responsible um, choices like within our own community. So you know, no one's forced to have an immoral abortion against their wishes under a under the erstwhile status quo, whereas um, the more restrictive legislations that are being debated in various states could um, could really take away people's ability to make very decent decisions, uh, including about how to grow their families. So thank you very much for for your time this morning. Um, I, I hope uh, we get to meet again in person under happy and healthy circumstances. Um, um, we're, we're not we're not driving to to New York this summer. We have an Israel trip instead, so we're not going to pass through Cleveland on our way. But um, uh, when we do next pass through Cleveland, we'll let you know. And uh, you have a standing invitation to visit us in Chicago. That's um, you know I recommend during the summer, but whenever you come, we'll be really happy to see you. 
Well, I hope to take you up on that soon. And I'm sure whatever the weather is in Chicago, it has to be better than what it is in Cleveland. So really? No, is that really true? <laughs> yes. Oh, Cleveland's worse than I, I didn't know that. I thought Cleveland does seem so much more moderate and southern compared to Chicago. It's probably not true. Okay. No, Cleveland, we get the lake effect from Lake Erie. Uh, okay. So then, you, then you're used to it. So come, come whenever you want. Uh, terrific. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Straw Hats. This is Straw Hat producer Haley Leventhal. Um, apologies, we got this episode out a little later than we intended, but we hope you enjoy listening. Um, thank you again to Rachel Wienerman for joining us on the podcast this week. We'll be going on a bit of a hiatus this summer while Rabbi Wolkenfeld is away in Israel. Um, So please subscribe or keep an eye on the Shul website and bulletin uh, to find out when we have new episodes coming out. Hope you all are having a wonderful and safe summer.